Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio Show. I am your host, Lori LeBay, and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort. At our core, we believe collaboratively we can win this battle against dementia. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we believe by joining forces, sharing knowledge, and having everyday conversations about life with dementia, we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss. We can help those in the trenches take back their lives and live with purpose. Together, we can help professionals understand the true needs, not just their perception of the needs of those dealing with dementia. At Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we want to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss. That means... Uh, their care partners, both family and professionals, people who are diagnosed, as well as advocates supporting the cause so we can all live wonderful lives. By raising awareness together and sharing the real, everyday life stories about living with memory loss, we give hope. No longer can we be driven by fear, and together we can teach people how to live with the disease and not as it. We hope you'll join us and check out our website and there you'll have access to all of our platforms, the blog, the resource directory, the radio show, the YouTube channel, uh, free tools, and more. And if you like the show today, please help us spread the word by liking us or sharing us with your friends on Facebook. You can email the link. People can always listen to it afterwards. Our channel expert uh, who may join us is Rick Phelps, and Rick has early onset uh, Alzheimer's disease known as EOAD, And I never know with Rick's schedule if he's going to be able to make the show or not, but if so, I will definitely pull him in. Rick was diagnosed in 2010, and he is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for those dealing with early memory loss, um, along with their care partners, as well as business professionals and advocates, to be able to have a true uh, conversation and develop friendships around the world. So it's really a pretty cool place. If you haven't checked it out, uh, just go to Facebook and in the search box, put in Memory People and ask to join. If you would like to join the conversation uh, today, which we would absolutely love you to do, uh, you can talk to us through the chat box if you signed in through Facebook and ask a question or make a comment. Or you can call in live at 714-364-4757. Again, that is 714-364-4757. And we would love to hear uh, what you have to say. 
Uh, today would be a great show to do that because we have a wonderful guest. Our our first guest, actually, we have two wonderful guests, but our first guest is Dr. Pam Hightai, and she is um, open to answering your questions about dementia. And uh, Dr. Hightai has been board certified uh, family practice physician for over 26 years. And her passion is dementia and how it affects families. She was a full-time provider for the Alzheimer's Dementia Unit at a veteran's center in Norman, uh, Oklahoma, and she learned how much families really don't know about the progression of dementia and how um, to safely care for loved ones at home. And so this has really um, just gotten to be her mission in life. So it's really her goal to provide education and support through individual consultation with families, speaking at support group meetings, workshops, and educating employees at assisted living centers and long-term care facilities as well. Uh, Dr. Hightai believes that with proper education about the various forms of dementia, um, we can prepare both families and employees to deal with behavioral disturbances, falls, and safety issues, and so much more. There's far too many people suffering with a form of dementia that are placed unnecessarily and oftentimes on harmful medications to control behavior issues. Um, her um, firsthand experience uh, through her 26 years of being a, a family practice physician, she really understands um, and has developed protocol to use for antipsychotic medications that can help uh, train both family and staff um, how to how to see early warning signs and um, and uh, de-escalate behaviors uh, that can sometimes be violent. So I'm really thrilled to have you with us today. How are you doing, Dr. Hightai? I'm good, Lori. Thank you. Well, great. Well, like I said, I'm just uh, I I love your mission and your passion, and uh, so many physicians that I I talk to don't always connect with the family and where they're at. Um, a lot of them, you know, know the, the basic um, diagnosis, and but they really haven't been in the trenches with it. And it sounds like you just have such a good background for, for really getting it, um, not just textbook, but real-life issues. And so I'm thrilled to have you with us. Um, again, for our listeners, if you have any questions, please go ahead and type those in or call in and we'll pull you into the conversation. In the meantime, we're just going to have kind of a guided conversation here and hopefully we'll spark some interest uh, and uh, be able to answer some questions that you have. So I think to begin with, what we'll do is, if you wouldn't mind just talking about the general progression of dementia and you know what you normally see. Uh, maybe families struggle with, that would be really helpful. Sure, I'd be glad to. You know, and and I will just say that I was in a very unique situation when I took the job at the Veterans Center in Oklahoma because it was a full-time job. I was there 8, 10, 12 hours a day. So I had a, a real hands-on approach with uh, the the folks down on the dementia unit and got to see firsthand um, all of the behaviors that many doctors never really see. They get the phone call at their office saying so-and-so is acting out and, and hitting other people and we need medication 
for this person now. So I was I was really blessed in many aspects to be able to see firsthand um, how these behaviors develop, how rapidly they can escalate to the point of people being harmed. And, you know, what was interesting is the families were just mortified. They just absolutely had no idea that dementia could progress to this point. And I think overall the sad part about the progression of dementia and and what families really don't realize is uh, the effect it's going to have on them. Uh, It's much harder on the family members when when their loved one reaches the moderately severe to severe stage of dementia, that that person is really not aware of much that's going on. They don't remember their behaviors. They don't remember what they're doing, but those families certainly do. And I think that was probably one of the biggest eye-openers for me was to see um, how how many families really did not know that these types of things could happen. Uh, you know, most people think that dementia is going to be memory loss and and that eventually mom or dad's going to forget me or my husband or my wife's going to forget me, uh, when in reality there's such a snowballing effect of the neurological damage that is done in the brain that causes all of the other things that progress with dementia. And I think probably one of the biggest things that most families are not prepared for, don't realize, um, are something simple called falls. Uh, the the ability to contract muscles and to stand up from a seated position uh, or even sit down or walk across the room, once the neurological damage in that brain is done, Uh, that impacts the message from the brain down to those muscles, telling that person, okay, it's time to get up out of this chair and walk across the room. I literally had a gentleman that would walk the halls constantly on my unit. And one day, I mean literally, Lori, he stopped dead in the middle of the hall and from that point on never took another step. And that's a very... Uh, abrupt progression of dementia, but it's it's a prime example of what this message not getting to these muscles in our body can, can do to somebody. And we went behind this gentleman and we took our foot and tapped it on the back of his shoe trying to remind him, okay, it's time to take this next, next foot forward. And it it didn't compute with him. He had no clue. He literally just there, So we got a wheelchair that didn't have any pedals on it, pulled it up behind him, set him down in it, and off he went. He was using his legs to pull himself around the unit. So it was just that neurological connection that suddenly got lost uh, to his legs and from his brain to his feet telling him how to take that next step. And that's a real example. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say one of the, one of the things that I liked about that example was just, you know, I think for most families because we want to control things, we want there uh-huh. to be a progression. You know, uh, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen, and it doesn't always follow a pattern. You know, and so just letting people know that it really is out of control. There's a lot of different ways that 
dementia can hit and progress. I mean, it, it's going to decline. We know that. Um, that's right. that's a given. But that's about it because everybody does react. Everybody's body reacts differently um, to this disease, and then everybody reacts differently because of their dynamics with their relationships and their history. And so there isn't the answers, I think, that, that families want. No, that's that's right. And a lot of families want to hold on to this, these stages of dementia and would constantly ask me what stage is he in, what stage is he in. And the thing about the stage of dementia is they can have a good day one day. We would have uh, guys on my unit that could feed themselves one day. The next day they couldn't. The following day, they could feed themselves again, and they're up walking, talking, and carrying on. So you're exactly right. Families want that clear-cut definition. They want that, you know, they want to know that, okay, this is going to happen then and then this, and timeline. They always wanted a timeline. And I'm telling you, there is no timeline with dementia. Uh, You know, we've got some very young people being diagnosed with dementia, which is pretty scary. Um, And... You know, that's that's part of, and, and I see, clinically what I see with early onset dementia is a, a much more aggressive form of dementia. And the other thing that causes a big difference that a lot of people are not aware of, you know, Alzheimer's is the number one, you know, diagnosis of, of dementia in this country and throughout the world today. But we have other forms of dementia. We have frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia vascular dementia so not all of them react the same way and certainly the progression of each one of them can be as different as you know our hair color and our eye color among siblings in a family nobody's going to do the exact same thing that that somebody else does with this disease called dementia so it's really interesting but falls can be a real problem for families and can really catch them off guard um and i always loved it when when i would admit a patient and they would say well <clears throat> here's his walker and i said okay you know uh is he remembering to use his walker well no he gets up and leaves without it you know so but it's that family member wanting to hold on to things i think more than anything else uh and and we had to educate families that Canes and walkers are going to be okay in the earlier stages of dementia if they're having some difficulty walking. But, uh, you know, when they forget them, they forget them. And you might as well just put them away or rent them and take them back to the place where you got them because, you know, once that memory about that walker is gone, it's gone. And falls are, yeah, and falls are part of it, unfortunately. So I would like to add in into um, what you're talking about is also glasses and dentures. And I know it doesn't have anything to do with falls, but I see so many people trying to get your glasses on, put your teeth in. You know, it's irrelevant to them. Um, Right, it is. With my my mom, my brother used to get so mad and finally said, okay, you take her to the eye doctor and you're going to see how Uh this works. Well, he got really mad because she couldn't read the chart. So then they got the then they got the children's chart out, and then she did okay with that for a while, and then all of a sudden she couldn't recognize the animals, and he he just was livid. And it's like Mark, yeah. she's not doing this to make you upset. It it just it doesn't connect. It it's 
it's futile. So, you know, can she see, can't she see, we're not really going to know that anymore. And it's it really is irrelevant. It's really about, you know, are they safe, are they happy, are they pain-free? You know, it, exactly. it really gets down to those core values and letting go of what was and embracing what is. And um, and then also I think, you know, we talked about family struggle, but I think staff really struggle with all of this too because it's easy when someone um, loses something to just project, well, that's, that's their activity level from here forward, and it's not all the time. Like you said, sometimes they... They, you know, bounce back and have a good day and and things. So I think it's important that we educate everybody that this disease really ebbs and flows. And, um, you know, nothing is cast in stone, or I, I sure haven't seen that anyways. And it sounds yeah, like and you I, haven't either. Oh, absolutely not. And it, I developed a, a the staff called it Dr. Hightower's famous saying, I would have to look at those wives and say, it is not about you. It is about him and what we need to do for him. We had one lady that, you know, when she admitted her husband, I mean, he was decked out, I mean, with, you know, the fancy loafers and the polo shirt and all of this stuff. And she would come in, and this was a gentleman that loved to go around from room to room and borrow shirts, and he would have 10 to 15 shirts on. And he loved it. And she would come in and just get livid about it. And, you know, I would go down and I'd say, this isn't about you. Well, he's never looked this way. He's always looked professional. And, all, you know, and I just have to stop her and say, we're way past that now. This is about his comfort. This is about his security and his happiness. And if putting 10 to 15 shirts on makes him happy, we're going to let him do it. Yeah. And she had she had the hardest time with getting her feelings out of the way. But that's what I tell families is you've got to, you know, you've got to just get out of the way of dementia many times. And you've got to quit fighting it. Oh, my goodness, some of the wives would come in and just nitpick and just hammer away at their husbands with 20 questions. And you could just see his anxiety level climbing and then the, the it would escalate into getting behavioral issues going, and we'd have to ask him to leave. Mm. You know, it was it was time to intervene and say, you know, because they just had never learned how to communicate with their loved one with dementia. You cannot you cannot give them multiple choices. You cannot make them sit and try to process. For instance, if you know the wife would say, "What do you want to eat? Do you want a hamburger? Or do you want a steak?" That was an impossible thing for that gentleman to process uh, after he got into moderate dementia. And that's a lot of what I I always tried to teach them, is you have to change. You have to learn to ask them questions that give the ability for them to say yes or no. That is how you've got to talk to them. And that was always a big struggle for families. That was one of the things that I saw, you know, daughters coming in, Daddy, do you remember so-and-so, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. It, it was it was truly sad, uh, yet I always viewed it as a real educational process for those families. It gave me an opportunity to sit them down and say, look, you know, this is why he can't respond to that. And 
we helped many, many families, you know, learn about the progression of dementia. And, and that is really when I got interested in doing something, and, and I did produce my video course on it, that would help families understand how to change their behaviors and the way they talk to their loved one, the way that they deal with their loved one. One of the hardest things that a lot of families had to learn was when to walk away. Yeah. And uh and and even the staff too, you know, on on the unit. They uh, they had to learn if they approach somebody and say, Well it come on, it's time to go take your bath and they're met with fists. It's time to turn around, walk off, come back in ten minutes and let's try again. Mm-hmm. And that that was that's a valuable thing that people need to hear today. Is if they walk up to their loved one and want them to do something, and they're met with either verbal abuse, basically is what I call it, cussing and carrying on, and you can tell that the anxiety begins to escalate, or if they're met with fists in their face, because many family members are, you've got to absolutely turn around, walk away, give them 10 to 15 minutes. And what families don't understand is they've gone up and and interrupted that individual when they're probably in the middle of a delusional thought or dealing with a hallucination due to their dementia. So they're busy processing that, and then you go up and interrupt them, and they can't deal with that. They cannot process two things at, at once. So you have to learn. You have to learn to walk away and come back in ten or fifteen minutes and try again. Okay. It looks like we've got a caller on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and okay. pull a caller from a six six one number in. Six six one, you are live on the air. Did you have a question or comment? I do. I, I have both, and I just want to applaud you in your efforts to bring this. A critical issue to the forefront of the consciousness of America because my father uh, passed away uh, of dementia and Alzheimer's and it was quite quite a challenge. Um, It was very difficult in that my mother had passed away uh, one year prior to his passing and when he moved in with me and and lived with me um, I had no idea as to the uh, the dimension of, of his disability, nor what all it entailed. Um, and prior, my mother had, you know, taken some of the responsibility away from my father, and I didn't understand why, because he seemed to me, when I was in his presence, to be fully capable and uh, able to do the things that, you know, that he should have been able to do as an adult. But when I moved him in with me, I, I quickly found out that he he wasn't able to uh, take care of himself as a as a as an adult as a male and and things like writing checks he wasn't able to calculate money or to even understand what he was writing for. Um, he did get into some trouble, and I think uh, it's important for people to also that have um, adult members, you know, parents or even children, siblings, anything, uh, people that have dementia, Alzheimer's, that 
you do look into like the durable power of attorneys and also the um, the financial power of attorneys because what happened to us in, in the later stages of my dad's life is um, he got involved with this this girl. She was just a few years younger, uh, older than I was, and he she started to take advantage of him, and um, she started to write checks out of his checkbook and would just have him sign. And and she was stealing a lot of money in this way, and I had the hardest time um, dealing with the banks and dealing with the lawyers and dealing with people just to get his finances shut down and just to, to stop all the money that was disappearing. And, and that was one of the aspects of the... Um, the dementia and the Alzheimer's that was just horrific. And I know this is happening to a lot of families and a lot of people um, uh, out there. And so, you know, I, I don't know if you had talked about those things, but if you haven't, I would definitely recommend to families that they do put those procedures in place for themselves because otherwise we uh, this girl would have, she was trying to get, financial power of attorney, I mean, she was criminally organized and knew exactly what to do. And I think she preyed on um, people that struggled in in certain capacity. And so there's organized criminals out there that are looking for, you know, wealthy people that or wealthy families that are dealing with the dementia, the Alzheimer's. Uh, They may choose to be – this girl was a caregiver, that we ended up hiring, and then she seduced my father, and it was a it was a terrible mess. And so I just thought I would share that with you. Oh no, you. that's that's good information, and I think that people do have to get their their uh, legal affairs in order. And even you know, Dr. Hightay, you can talk to this a little bit more, but even for families to be able to talk to the doctors and know what's going on. Um, you know, you need you need the right paperwork in order, um, so the communications are clear. And I think that that is a place where families do fall down, not understanding the process and the legalities right. of it all. So thank you so much for for calling in and making your comments. Um, and um, we're going to go I on with. Shared one more thing with you. Sure. I uh, just wanted to say one thing about dealing with the doctors. One of the other things that I had um, problems as far as dealing with the doctors is my father was a cardiac patient. And during the process of, uh, he was trying to, he was going to get a heart transplant and it was during this heart transplant that they ended up destroying his mind and they said that, you know, this is where his dementia stemmed from and everything. But the, the hospitals, none of the doctors, nobody wanted to diagnose him with dementia or Alzheimer's or anything, they wanted to give them Aricet, but they didn't want to put any kind of a diagnosis on them. And so I had to fight with his doctors and his hospitals just to get them to formally diagnose his dementia um, because, and that was another problem. And then having that established with the financial power of attorney and all that, it was just a mess, so I would recommend people definitely put into place the durable power of attorney for health care decisions and the financial power uh, of attorney because those kind of things will help if you get into a 
the mess that we ended up getting into. And uh, I just thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for calling in. Appreciate it. I think it's very important for people to understand, too, that you can get a lot of these forms on the Internet, but it really will pay back in tenfold talking with an elder law attorney, someone who really understands the specifics of your particular situation. And, you know, each state has has little different twists and turns to their form, so you need to make sure that you're using the right format um, for your particular situation as well. Um, Dr. Hightide, did you want to add anything there? Oh, yeah. You know, he touched on so many, so many things, so many issues that that I saw um, when my patients were admitted. And I'm talking veterans that were admitted uh, when they were in moderate stage of dementia. And the sad thing is, is statistically 20 to 30% of those veterans admitted to the locked dementia unit uh, had never had an appropriate workup. They'd never had a CAT scan or an MRI. Um, And it was just like he mentioned, you know, okay, they took him in, told the doc, you know, daddy's not remembering this and he's doing that. And the doctor said, okay, let's just put him on some Aricet and see if it gets better. Oh, my word. You know, this is this is one of the things that I talk at length about in my video course is because run, don't walk away from that provider. You've got to get your <laughs> loved one diagnosed because early intervention is what slows the progression of dementia. And so many people are allowed to have dementia into the moderate stages and never have a workup. Things so simple, such as a B12 or folate deficiency. Although it's not the reason they have dementia, it can mimic dementia. And so many times when I would get these guys in and I'd run this comprehensive lab work on them, I'd either find thyroid disorders, a B12 deficiency, a folate deficiency. Did it cause their dementia? No, but it added to it. And I would get them metabolically stabilized, and they would they would begin to remember things again. And their families would come in and say, what did you do? And I said, I did lab work. And now I'm fixing his anemia, and I've put him on B12. And, you know, it it's sad what's going on. And what this young man talked about was this caregiver situation. You know, this is something that I wish we could get Congress involved in. Uh, because this is an absolute travesty, and it's going on. He's exactly right. It's happening everywhere, every day. It's happening right now to too many people. And the thing I want people to hear me say, there's an agency in every state in this country called Adult Protective Services. You get on the phone, you call them, and get them involved. And let me tell you, folks, They've got the judges in their back pockets. They will get things done. They can make things happen. They can make sure that that caregiver never gives care again to another individual. And, you know, as far as getting these legal documents in order, you have to do it early enough when your loved one that has dementia can legally make these decisions. And he's exactly right. 
you have got to get something called a medical making power of attorney, medical decision making power of attorney. I can tell you that if you have just a blanket power of attorney, that's not going to cut the mustard. I had many instances, unfortunately, where we had such severe behavioral issues on the unit that I would have to send the veterans to a Jerry Psychiatric facility to be stabilized and placed on some medication. Those facilities would not accept them unless there was a durable power of attorney for medical-making decisions. It couldn't be a blanket durable power of attorney. The other thing is if you're already living with someone that has got uh, that the dementia is significant and legally they cannot sign this paperwork, you're going to have to seek guardianship. And that's not a difficult thing to do. Uh, you're going to have to involve the health care provider to get them to write the letter to the judge that states this person is no longer capable of making decisions for themselves or managing their finances. So, you know, there's there's various things, and you're right, Lori, that you've got to get an, a lawyer that is familiar with, with the elder care laws and yeah. and get that person advocating for you. And that's the way you've got to look at it. And that's what well, I used to tell tell families is I'm advocating for your loved one. I'm making this decision because it's the right thing to do for him, not about mm-hmm. you. And so getting a lawyer that understands the laws can really make this kind of a process go much smoother. Oh, definitely. And I like that you had talked about adult protection in the States too because one of the things that we really need and we don't have, you know, they kind of have that uh, – inventory for sex offenders and we really need that for mm-hmm. for bad caregivers um so they can't just hop a state line you know or exactly. uh, a company line and be in the door again um preying on somebody else we really need and i know that that's something that that congress is working on but i just don't think it's as big of a priority as what it should be when you look at the right. dollars that it's costing um, from mm-hmm. one angle, but you look at the personal destruction um, that they're doing. I mean, because some of it isn't all, it's not just all financial. Some of these guys are, are physically abusive and yes, sexually absolutely. abusive. I mean, there's lots of different types of abuse, um, and we we need a tracking system for that. And um, so if anybody out there in our listening audience wants to start a petition or something, I know that there's something on the Internet to do that for causes. I don't know where it is. Um, let me know. Maybe we can we can start a cause there because it definitely is something that needs to, needs to be handled. Um, I'll let you get back in case there were some other things that you wanted to touch base um, that our caller had mentioned there. I kind of broke in, but I, I did want to mention that tracking because I just think it's so important. Well, it is. We, we, in essence, we need an Angie's list for care providers, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 not a positive Angie's list, a negative Angie's list, where <laughs> <laughs> a list is made and you know that that name is plastered all over the internet so that they can't go out and and care for anybody else in another state. You're exactly right, because yep. it happens. Yeah, all all too often. And and um, I'll give you a perfect. Uh, and I'll give mm-hmm. you a perfect example. I admitted a gentleman. I can still to this day remember this, and it just broke my heart. You know, I'd do a complete physical exam on them when they would come in, and I saw some 
marks on this gentleman's ankles and his wrists. And so, of course, he didn't know what had happened. His his dementia was significant enough that he couldn't remember. And I asked his family, and they said, well, we thought we had hired the best caregiver in the world. We thought she was just wonderful. Well, they dropped in one day and found their dad duct taped. Mm. His ankles and his wrists were duct taped, and he was in the bed, duct taped to the bed. And that was how she was taking care of him and left marks on his ankles and his wrists from the duct tape. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. If you think it doesn't happen, I'm here to tell you it does. And some of them can snow those families like nobody's business. You can think you've got the best caregiver in the world, and I'm telling you, and I've always said this to families when they'd ask me where should I admit my loved one, you know, like for a nursing home. And over 26 years, this is what I've told them. You go make random visits. Don't tell them you're coming. You just show up. See what condition those patients are in. Um, You know, and if if your loved one's living there, and the the same thing needs to happen if you have to hire a caregiver to take care of your loved one while you go off to work. You've got to make some random surprise visits and find out what's going on because, unfortunately, those things happen all too frequently. Well, and you should have the freedom to come and go. If someone is controlling when you can visit, uh, to me that's just a major red flag right there. Boy, it is. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, well, what's sad, I, I do want to say one other thing, Lori, about what sure. this, this gentleman said. The the issue with the heart transplant, um, yeah, yes, it triggered his dementia. He likely had uh, probably a mixed bag of, of diagnoses for dementia, Alzheimer's, and vascular. If he had significant heart disease, he had vascular dementia as well. And that general anesthetic and putting him on a heart pump and all that, definitely I am sure that his dad came out with some real significant changes. I have to say this because everybody needs to hear this. If your loved one falls at home, fractures the hip, and they have to undergo a hip repair, do not let them put them under general anesthetic. You're going to lose so much cognitive ability with your loved one. You're going to get a totally different person come out of that general anesthetic that went in. And it's possible to do hip repair under what we call a local anesthesia, basically a spinal, and you don't get the severe cognitive changes that you do with general anesthetic. And that's a big one. So, yeah, very definitely. That's a huge one. And you know, it amazes me that, that doctors on a whole aren't more educated about that. Is there is there a reason the hospitals don't like it? Is there more risk to it? Or is it just the way it's always done and so it's just simpler procedure? It is all about time. It is time-consuming oh. to do a spinal. So what? But I'm telling you, you know, unfortunately... Too many, too many physicians, especially that are in some of the specialties, they just want to get in, get it done, get out. That's the their number. whole, yep. that's it. You know, they do not stop to think about, 
what's this going to do to my patient if I put him under general anesthetic? And sometimes the way they kind of give themselves a a break about that is they have an internal medicine doc come in and prior to surgery and clear them for surgery. And in the orthopedic surgeon's brain, that gives them permission to go ahead and do that general anesthetic. You know, I, I battled that a lot with my gentleman that I would send to have hip repairs done. And uh, the other thing was the issues of placing a peg tube. Oh, for God's sakes. I, you know, I, I just, what was that? A peg Can you tube, say that a feeding again? tube. Oh, the feeding uh, tube. A feeding okay. tube, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've got a moderate to moderately severe dementia patient, everybody's going to lose weight, folks. you got to hear me say that. Every dementia patient loses weight. Why? Again, it goes back to the neurological connection from the brain to the rest of the body. The brain is the big machine of the body, telling the body what to do. And every dementia patient loses weight. Several reasons. The first one, their appetite center in their brain is affected. It doesn't tell them that they're hungry when they sh- when it should. And oftentimes it doesn't tell them they're hungry at all. The other one is that the neurological connection to the gut, telling the gut to absorb what we're putting in our bodies, is changed or interrupted. And so the gut isn't going to absorb like it used to. What's what's that result in? If you're not absorbing the calories you're putting in, you're losing weight. Mm-hmm. And too many specialists want to run and put a peg tube in a dementia patient. Oh, for Pete's sakes. Why? What do you hope to achieve with that? You're going to have somebody that's going to constantly pull that peg tube out. It It's a just a horrible, horrible thing to watch Um there's actually a study that came out about two and a half years ago that said one of the worst things you can do basically is put a peg tube in a dementia patient because their pain perception has changed so much and they were finding in these folks that had peg tubes placed that those people were having pain at the site of insertion of the peg tube that people with peg tubes that don't have dementia didn't have. Again, it's all neurologically connected, but I clinically saw that. I saw that pain with that peg tube. Asset, you know, I would ask those families, please let me take this peg tube out. He's miserable. He's hurting. No, they they wanted it in. You know, the starving to death in their minds was, was much worse than him being in constant pain. So there's so many things that you've really got to educate yourself about with dementia. And yeah. things are just, you know, things are different with dementia. No, there is no book. The body does not follow any rules when it when you have dementia. And it, like you and I talked about early on, the progression of dementia it is not cast in stone. The things that can progress dementia rapidly are general anesthetic and moving a dementia patient into a new environment. Those are the two biggies that I saw. Well, yeah, even just going into the hospital, let alone oh, having surgery, can just throw them for a loop. And and uh, it's very difficult for them to bounce back, and families are always struggling with that. So, it, you know, the more, the more comfortable you can keep them in their routines, in their environment, yep. Um, yep. massive, 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 massive. 
And, um, you know, again, it is really about their comfort, not ours. And that's a a hard thing to step back from as a family. I call it um, freeze-framing when we want them to be, you know, who who we once were. But then there's that whole other level that comes into that we're doing things. We tell ourselves we're doing things for them. And it's all task-oriented usually because um, when we have a task, we think we're in control. But with every single one of those tasks, there's an emotion attached to it at our end. And it's our emotion that's pushing us to make our decisions. And so if we're sad, if we're not ready to lose somebody or see a decline, then we, you know, do the feeding tubes and we do the different things that has nothing to do with them. It has to do with we're not ready to um, be at that next stage. And so as a society, we really have to start dealing with these things appropriately because, um, you know, one of the questions I always pose when I speak is, are you going to be the next to forget or the next to be forgotten? And the whole point of that question is, how do you want to be treated? How do you want to live your life? And sometimes I think that's what families and staff have to ask is, really, what what would this person want? Not what makes me comfortable. What right. would this person want? Because that truly is the core of person-centered care. No matter how many tasks we're doing, no matter how many things we're, we're preoccupied with, and not that those things don't have to get done, but those things are not person-centered care. They are just tasks. Exactly. And there's a big, big difference. Um, but we don't teach that. No, no. And, you know, it, it comes down to quality of life versus mm-hmm. quantity of life. And to me, I always uh, advocated quality of life for my guys. And, you know, that that is exactly what our goal was on that unit, was to give them the best quality for their life in their remaining time. And, you know, it was really interesting. Um, I had many gentlemen that would get admitted there, and even though I would sit and tell those families, look, you know, just the fact that you're admitting him here, you're going to see a a decline in his cognitive ability. Well, they forgot to read that. They forgot to read Dr. Pam's book, and because we got them into our environment, we got them into a routine, we structured everything geared towards the best time of day to do activities, the best time of, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Those guys improved. Their families would come in and say, what are you doing? He is so much better. It is all about a routine that is centered around them and their needs. They yeah. weren't being asked questions anymore. They weren't being given 50 million choices to have to make. My staff was trained to see the the signs of the escalating behavior so we could remove them out of whatever, you know, whatever room they were in at the time that we saw their behavior escalate. We always, I always taught the staff something in that, in their immediate environment has triggered a delusional thought or a hallucination. Get them out of that environment, get them to a calm area to help them de-escalate and then get them a snack. Redirect that brain off of that delusion and that hallucination 
and get it centered on food. Yeah. And it worked. It worked nine times out of ten. So you know, those are the things that the families need to hear. It's all about routine. Doing yeah. the same thing the same way every single day. Not having to have them make a decision about when they want to eat. Their appetite center can't tell them anymore. And I'd have wives come in and say, you know, it was just frustrating. I'd try to get him to tell me what he'd want to eat. And I'd say, well, you know, why didn't you just go cook something and then sit him down and put it in front of him? Well, I never thought of that. Because yep. nine times out of ten, they're going to eat it. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, and even I know with my mom, we'd go to a restaurant. And I wanted to bring this up when you are talking about how they, you know, they don't know to eat. There's also a time that some go through, and, and my mom was one of those, where she wanted to eat. So we had to stop yeah. letting her go up to the buffet line because she would literally have five plates going because she would put a plate down and then Everything she'd something good. else. And she'd wander off and she'd start another plate, you know, um, because she was so interested. But she had no idea she had five plates. At, you know, mm-hmm. at the buffet line. And then it got to the point in the restaurant, too, in terms of just having to do things different where she couldn't make those choices. She would look at the menu because that was still part of the routine. She knew that socially. She's supposed to look uh-huh. at the menu. But, you know, could she read it? Could she decipher it? It didn't make any difference. And so she would say, well, I'll have what, what you're having a lot of times. Or right. I would um, say, you know, I can't decide if we if we get these two things, can we split them? Because there were moments where she would uh, she would forget that she wanted something, and so the food would come, and then she'd be angry, going, "Well, they got my food," you know. And she uh-huh. would just, so yeah. we just started sharing, and and I would make it that I couldn't decide, and then she was totally fine with it. You know, yeah, she was really helping wonderful. helping me. Yeah. Out. And we, yeah. it just alleviated any of those issues, and it made it fun. And, you know, I like variety, and I don't mind sharing a plate. For those of you listeners that don't you know, like doing that, that would be probably an issue. But, boy, it just made it so much easier, so yes, much easier. It and it was very dignified. It, there wasn't any awkward moments in the restaurant doing that. Um, it was just really, really simple. Exactly. And that's what you want. Mm-hmm. You want simple. You want simple. Yeah. Simple and comfortable so that you can have fun and relish in the moments that you still have, um, yeah. you know, with that person. Um, I do want to talk about, um, and this I can't believe it's, we've only got 10 minutes left here um, to talk with you. <laughs> um, this conversation's gone by so fast, but, you know, you have some thoughts on um, antipsychotic drugs and identifying behaviors. And if you can give some people some more tips regarding that, because I think that is such a huge issue. And, and I always tell people that a behavior is just a reaction we don't like. Right. You know, we categorized it as inappropriate, but usually, and I've never found this not to not to occur, there's a reason they're acting that way, just like there's a reason we act the way we do. Um, exactly. And they're typically very justified. And so being able to find those triggers, if you've got any um, tips for people, I think that would be wonderful. Well, and, you know, they've got to understand that, uh, unfortunately, part of dementia is delusional thoughts 
your loved one getting in their mind that something has happened and it could be the farthest thing from the truth, but it is happening to them in real time, right then, right there. Same thing with hallucinations. They can hear people telling them to do things or they can see things that aren't there that you and I don't see. Um, I can use several prime examples. Um, I got called down in my unit one time because this gentleman was ripping the curtain down between his bed and his roommate's bed. And he was seeing blood everywhere, all over the mm. curtains. He was in a he was really in a crisis. But you know, so so this happens. It's happening to them. Don't discount it. Don't tell them it's not happening because that's not going to do any good. If it's escalated to that point, just as I said a minute ago, you've got to get them out of the immediate environment they're in, take them into a different room. Probably one of your best redirection techniques is food and drink. And I'm going to tell you something. Dementia patients get a sweet tooth. Don't deny them sweets because they'll go nine times out of ten. If you held up a half a sandwich and you held up a cookie, they're going to go for the cookie. Always, always happened that way for us. But watching your loved one, getting to know their body language, understanding what they look like when they're beginning to get anxious, that those are the big things that I always taught my staff to look for. You know, if we've suddenly got someone that's walking the halls that has been sitting down, doing activities, suddenly they get up and they're gone and they're walking the halls. Something's going on in that brain. They're having a delusional thought. They're having a hallucination. And it was the staff's job to redirect that by taking them to a calm environment. If the guys liked listening to music, we would turn music on for them. If they liked TV, we would turn TVs on for them. We would do whatever we could do in the moment to interrupt that delusion or that hallucination. Food and drink, big ones. That's what families have to do at home. But your number one rule is, just like I talked about earlier, if you walk up to them and you're met with hostile words or fists in your face, you turn around and you walk off. You come back in 10 minutes and you try again. If you're met with the same thing, you turn around and you walk off. Next time you come back, you come back with a snack and something to drink and say, I'm going to go have a cookie and um, maybe you've got a co- you know, coffee made and some coffee. Would you like to come? What Number one, that's going to stop that delusional thought and that hallucination that's going on in their brain and you've given them a question that only requires a yes or no answer and it's going to be effective about 80% of the time. So that's what I call de-escalating a situation that is developing. And antipsychotics, in my opinion, are overused to the max, to the max. My protocol was always, and I dealt with some very serious situations, and we would try an injectable form of an antipsychotic to get them out of that immediate crisis they were in. You know, but obviously if they're beaten up on the staff or other patients, you know, I was I had to do something about it. Same thing with hold true for somebody at home. If they've got somebody that's just throwing things, breaking things, hitting people, 
it's got to be dealt with. But my approach was for a two-week period of time on a low dose. It would, could be Seroquel. It could be um, Haldol. It could be Respiradone. And I would tell the families, we're only going to use it for two weeks, and then we're going to taper them off of it. And nine times out of ten, they did beautifully. They didn't require long-term antipsychotic use. And that goes against everything psychiatrists do today. They think once they have to put somebody on an antipsychotic, that they have to stay on it. They're not dealing with a psych patient per se, somebody with schizophrenia, somebody with bipolar disease. I wished I could get them to rethink this. They're dealing with dementia, and that episode can be gone in a matter of a couple of weeks, and then you can stop that medication, and they'll do beautifully. Can it happen again? Sure. Does it happen again? Sometimes. But the beauty of it is is you're not sitting there drugging your loved one with a medication that they don't need. Yeah, well, and and what people don't realize is sometimes there's layer upon layer of drug that, you know, they have their own effects. But so much of what we can do can be controlled environmentally in terms of our our surroundings, being more conscious of our nonverbals, understanding that our our tone and our appearance and our routines, all of those little things that we have total control over can have huge impact, and then when you package them together, look out world, you know. I mean, it's, and people are dumbfounded, but it's breaking it down. It's putting on that investigator hat and really paying attention. Well, and for instance, you know, if the grandkids come over and you see your loved one's behavior escalate, guess what? Unfortunately, the grandkids are the, the trigger. So it may be time to take a little vacation from the grandkids. Or if they come over and everything's going fine and then suddenly you begin to see some some behavior escalate, some anxiety begin to develop, then it's time for the grandchildren to go home. It's yep. that simple. And it might not just be the grandkids. It might be larger crowds that are more unstructured or higher-toned voices or um, yep. lots of different things. and. You know, I think as families, one of the things that they still struggle with is, well, we always had everyone get together. Well, that large crowd is not a good thing. Uh You know, it's called overstimulation, and they they can't sort out the voices. You know, they talk about being able to hear things. It's almost like everything's going through a blender, and they can't make out one sentence from the next, let alone try to answer your question, because they don't even know where it's coming from, or if it is one. And um, really appreciating, you know, our our quality time on a on a more intimate level. And I think also yeah. understanding too. And I can tell that you've done appreciation for this is that they don't have to be busy all the time. No, they you know, do not. But, but so many people think they have to be in an activity. They have to be active and. Um, Harry Urban, who I just love to death, I'll never forget, he he said um, uh, in an interview I was doing with him, he said, you know, I liked my peace and quiet before I got dementia. I still enjoy it. Yeah, there okay. you go. It's okay. Watch for me to be peaceful and content. 
that's really how I'd like to live my life. Mm-hmm. That's and so, I mean, just a, such a simple, simple, you know, lesson um, that can bring us all a lot of peace in terms of how we deal with this, not feeling like we have to fix it, not feeling like we have to control it, which we can't, um, you know, because once we let go of that control, I know for myself, I felt a lot more in control. Because I wasn't, right. I, I didn't have that uphill battle. I didn't have that expectation anymore. And understanding that, you know, it's not about perfection; it's about progress. So take those little teeny steps of adjusting exactly. your environment and how you interact um, can make a, a big, big difference. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for all your wonderful insights today. I could just talk with you all day long. Um, It's just been such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show today. And and maybe we'll have you back again in the future to get some more advice. Oh, absolutely. Anything else that you would like to say to our audience before um, I introduce our next guest? Uh, Well, I'm going to just do a little plug. I'd love everybody to visit my website. It's DementiaCaregiver.org. I have a lot of helpful information there and my video course there if anybody's interested in that. But I think overall... You know, um, I think my overall advice would be you you need to learn to calm down. <laughs> you need to just make a nice, safe, secure, routine environment that your loved one lives in and learn, watch them closely and learn the signals that, that causes uh, the escalation towards behavioral issues because it will make your life so much easier when you learn to manage that and and get that taken care of with redirection techniques, food food and drink, number one best tool, pull it out, use it. The next one, get them in a get them in a different room, get them out of the environment they're in. They like music, let them listen to music. They like want to go for a walk. They love gardening. Just get them out doing what they love to do and get them away from from that area that triggered that that behavior to escalate in the first place and your life will be so much easier. But you're so right. They need to enjoy their time with them and treasure yep. those golden those golden moments that they'll get because they'll be there if, if they'll be still long enough to hear them. Exactly. Good, good advice. Now, your website is www.dementiacaregiver.org. Is that correct? Yep, that's it. Okay www.dementiacaregiver.org. And again, we've been speaking with Dr. Pam Hightai, and that's H-I-T-I. And um, they can email you through that or um, get your contact oh, information. Wonderful. Or Dr. Yeah, Dr. Pam Hightai at gmail.com. Okay, great. <laughs> well, you have a well, wonderful Well, Laurie, I've enjoyed today. it. Yeah, well, you too. And thank you very much, and and I would love to come back anytime. Okay, wonderful. Have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest, who is Bernie Saunders. And Bernie is actually a good friend of mine, and he really believes that life is truly a work of art. And he is a professional photographer, speaker, Um, and author of his signature personal enrichment program called Boundless Renewal. He's the co-author on the internationally acclaimed book, Ten Steps 
on a learning organization and co-author with his poet mother, Kay Saunders, of the inspirational book, The Grace of Ordinary Days, An Invitation to Celebrate Life's Journey, which is an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous uh, collection. Bernie has over 40 years of experience working in the field of human development. He is... um, most His most profound education came from playing in the woods as a child, experimenting with a camera that his father gave him as a young, young teen. Also planting rice in the Philippines, working with his young, uh, young adult uh, drug addicts, and raising his two sons with his wife, Constance, uh, along with guiding businesses uh, and, le- and community leaders to become servant leaders. So, Welcome, Bernie. How are you doing today? All right. Hi. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. I I really want to talk about your book, The Grace of Ordinary Days, because it is uh, it's so spectacular, and I just think it's just a a neat project that you did with your mom. So can you can you tell our audience a little bit about the origin of the book and and why you decided to to do it? Happy to. Thanks for asking. Um, my mother was 81 years old and not doing very well at all. The signs were pretty clear that she was coming to the end of her life. Uh, illnesses had been going on for a good number of years. And so one day when my wife Constance and I were on a trip, we stopped at her home over in Wisconsin And uh, in talking to her, she's lying on the couch. Um, I just serendipitously, with no no pre-thought at all, asked her the following question. Would you be interested in doing a little project together with your poems and my photographs of the inside world of flowers uh, about aging? Now, she was a very accomplished writer and poet. Published, she had taught for years. Uh, students all over the Midwest, so she really had a very strong word uh, association, but at the same time she just adored a series of images that I'd taken about the inside world of flowers. So it was just an idea off the cuff to do something with my mother while she is dying at the end of her life. And so we started on this little journey together, uh, looking at her poems and my photographs and, you know, what do we want to say and what do we want to do. And it started some very in-depth conversations with each other. <coughs> Excuse me. And so as we went down this, down this journey together, what we began to realize is that we were really reconstituting our 60 years together as a mother and son in total unexpected ways that, you know, they just were not planned. Um, There was a point in that evolution that became pretty clear that based on the support of family, friends, colleagues who kept saying to us, do you have any idea, the two of you have any idea how important this project is about relationships, especially from the oldest son uh, who was pretty much the black sheep of the family, and the two of you didn't get along all all those years, sometimes on and off. Um, But now you are in the process of exploring that relationship in a total different way using your art as the the medium, as the vehicle for your conversations. 
So we just kept going down this road. She lived for another four years as we continued to work on this project. Um, and we decided that we had something that we wanted just to say to people out there, an invitation. And that's where the, the title of the book is called The Grace of Ordinary Days. And the subtitle, which is equally, if not more important, um, is uh, the, title, the subtitle is An Invitation to Celebrate Life's Journey. And that was our message, and it still is our message today, um, is how are you, no matter who might that be in your life, but the important relationships that you have, how are you celebrating that? As, as many of you know, legacy and creating legacy stories is really an important thing that is happening, and I'm so excited about the wonderful work that so many families uh, are doing to bring alive, to be able to hold the, those critical memories of very dear ones, especially mothers and fathers. What my mother and I decided that what we wanted to add to that conversation was how can you spend some time to create a relationship legacy with each other to be able to not have a, just a one-way legacy conversation, but a back and forth that exchange between you and someone that you deeply care about to enrich, to enhance, to inspire that relationship, uh, no matter what kind of relationship it has been, be able to, to enrich that maybe in a special way that, that you had never thought about before. So that's how the book was created. And, um, and we just went down this journey. And as I said, she, did, she died before the book was done. Uh, she died in 2003 at 85 years old um, and did not get to see the final final project. But uh, we completed it two years later uh, with my father and I uh, worked on that, which was a whole different, totally unexpected, enriched, celebratory relationship with my father, too, after, after she died. So that's a little bit of a story about the origin of the book, The Grace of Ordinary Days. Okay, wonderful. Now, you talk about um, relationship legacy. Can you give us some examples of that on, on what you mean about relationship legacy? Sure, be happy to. Um, like what my mother and I did was a relationship legacy. We, we created something about our relationship to bring it alive, to bring it into the world. Uh, sharing our artwork plus small little vignette stories together. And so what we created was a book. Other examples, um, people kept saying, well, we can't, we can't do what you and your mother did. And, and that's, in most cases, that would, that would be true. So a, a couple of other examples, okay? Um, uh, a grandmother, and he must be, the grandson right now must be 11 or 12 years old. And what the grandmother did is that she, who she is also a poet, uh, invited her grandson to exchange back and forth with each other uh, poetry about their relationship, not, not about how their life was going or other insights about the world or nature, but the kind of relationship that they had as a grandmother and grandson, and to write poems back and forth with each other and to share those. What began to happen was is that 
they would write these poems and then they would exchange them and they started creating this collection of special moments and the insights about how they saw each other but using poetry <coughs> excuse me using poetry as that as the medium that's a relationship legacy so that's one one example uh, the other example is two sisters. Uh, one sister got a copy of the book, thought, boy, this would be really exciting and wonderful to do with my older sister. So she called her. They live in a, they live in a different state. So she called her and asked her if she'd be willing to do this, write things back and forth, because the sister was saying, I would like to be able to exchange writings about our relationship when we were growing up. And the older daughter said, no, no way, not uh, not, not going to do it, but I'm willing to talk about things on the telephone. So they began swapping back and forth on the phone. One of the daughters, for example, would pick a topic, and that's what they would talk about. And then the next phone conversation, the other daughter would pick a topic and they would have a conversation about that. So, for example, um, one of the daughters decided that one of the things that was important for their relationship when they were growing up was that every Saturday the two of them would clean the hallway closet. And as they kept talking about that, what they realized is that it was a it was a, a connecting experience between the two of them, but as they kept exploring the reasons why they would clean the closet, what began to emerge was that the reason that they did it as a ritual, which was really critical for them as little girls growing up, is that their father was down at the local bar getting drunk because he was an alcoholic, and that this was an important marker for them to have some form of constant ritual a connection with each other that was special, even though it was you know cleaning a closet. That led to a series of other conversations about what it was like for them. And they said, when they reported back to me, and were willing to share this uh, with me, uh, they said that they always had had a close relationship with each other, but now what began to happen is they found themselves being inspired to even be closer, to have a deeper connection with each other, and that that was a surprise for the two of them. So that's an example of what my mother and I were hoping would begin to happen over time is that people would be able to make some kind of connection around their own relationship legacy. A friend of mine, you know, David, got a copy of the book. His mother lived in northern Minnesota. He went up to visit her for Thanksgiving weekend, brought the book. She was in her middle 90s. And when he called me a couple of weeks after he came back, he said, you know, uh, she's having problems physically, mentally, etc. but there was something about sitting on the couch on Thanksgiving afternoon with my mother going through the whole book. She, he said we went from the front of the book to the end all in one sitting, and she was so engaged what was happening 
not only because of the poetry, because of the flower images. And we started having conversations of what it was like for her as a little girl growing up on the farm in North Dakota about having gardens and et cetera and the flowers that she had, things that I never knew before. And it was all because of the catalyst of how am I going to celebrate my life with my mother who I'm not quite sure she understands who I am all the time, but that catalyst of spending that afternoon with her was was a moment that I will never, ever forget and will be a treasure for me for the rest of my life. Those oh, are a couple neat. of examples. Oh, very, very neat. I, I think it's, you know, so powerful, and it, it's something any of us can really do. And um, what a great, great connection um, with that. Can you tell us um, a little about, you know, how the book, creating the book with your mom, you know, changed your relationship and what you might recommend for others who might be interested in in doing some type of um, relationship legacy? Sure. Um, I will answer that, but I want to I want to ask you a question too, and then have you think about it and see if you're up to answering it. Sure. After I. Answer. After, okay, are you up to that? My, sure, I'm my always question, game. <laughs> you're always, you're always I'm game. I'm always I know game. <laughs> you are. You're a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious about, you know, you've seen the book. You've you've been a very wonderful supporter uh, over the last number of years. I'm just, just curious about how the book, the poetry, the photographs, the stories, whatever, has influenced you, if any way, you know, I'm not, not going to assume that it has, but if it has uh, uh, influenced you in, in some way, shape, or form in relationship to your mother. So just curious. You know, I, I, to be honest, I'm a little jealous that you were able to create that with your mom. Um, for my mom, she was, you know, further progressed um, disease-wise, and so I didn't see a way to be able to to um to do that legacy piece with her in that type of fashion um so but it has given me um uh, you know it, it cuz it's just Bernie it's so well done it is the photographs and the poetry in this book are absolutely spectacular i mean they'll just take your breath away and they'll make you think and about just cherishing so many things that we overlook um, and looking at things in a different light. And to me, you know, that's one of the powers of the book. And and your title is is perfect, The Grace of Ordinary Days. Because so often we don't appreciate uh, what is right before us. We miss it because we're so busy you know, with our schedules and we're taking care of stuff and we're trying to be in control and we're not just relishing in those moments that we have. And um, so to me, I, I mean, it, it, it's a very inspiring and it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a, it's a great book, I think, personally, but it's a beautiful gift book as well. And, you know, for our listeners, it might give you some ideas of different ways you can engage and and maybe your family's not into poetry and into photography. You know, maybe you've got other hobbies and skill sets. Um, or maybe you want to try something new. Even with someone with dementia, you know, they talk about um, someone who's never painted can now paint. 
you know, maybe you're yep. going to take a painting class together or do different things. It really it doesn't make much difference. Um, but I think it's important to have that connection and to be able to learn from one another. Um, you know, for me, I guess my legacy relationship with my mom is really everything I've built with Alzheimer's Speaks, the radio show, the dementia chats, the webinars, the speaking, the training, the tools, um, the resource website. Um, and I'm in the process of doing a book because in those special little moments, the, the grace of those ordinary days, those those ordinary seconds, um, she has taught me powerful things that just need to be shared. And yep. so for me, I, I, I'm doing it in a different fashion, but I, everything I do, I mean, it has nothing to do with me. It really is about what she has taught me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, great. Okay, just curious. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Yeah, I haven't forgot about your question about, you know, how has it changed my relationship, but I want to share another story that I just thought of that I forgot about before. Um, uh, the, just for folks, just really quick, the book is broken, or not broken, <laughs> the book is divided into three sections, early years, middle years, and older years. And there is poems and photographs and short little vignette stories that illustrate our 60 years together when I was young, my middle years, and now that I'm 70, uh, the older years and and that. And so there's those poems and and photographs. But the last section, the older years, there's a series of photographs of flowers that are, quote, unquote, past their prime. They are images, what I call wrinkled wisdom, and they are an illustration of what naturally happens in nature. What happens with flowers is that we all wrinkle. And some of the images that are in that section of the book, the older years section, are my favorite because they're all wrinkled, but there's elegance and majesty and beauty and wisdom. And it just it's, some of them are just like, ah, oh, just phenomenal. So a couple of years ago, I'm doing a, a program on reflection and renewal for a group of social workers at, at a facility here in, in, in Minneapolis. And I had just, I threw in some of the wrinkled wisdom images into the collection that I was sharing with these people about reflection, renewal, rejuvenation. <coughs> and it was the first time that I had done it. Um, and it must have been four or five of, of the images, uh, or the wrinkled wisdom ones. At the end of the talk, I'm you know chatting with folks, and a young woman in probably her middle 20s or something came up to me, and she is crying really, really hard. And when she got a little bit more of a composer, she shared, she shared the following story, is that she wanted, to, first of all, to thank me for putting the wrinkled wisdom images in there because she was struggling with her grandfather who was in late stages Alzheimer's and was dying and did not recognize her, didn't know, even know who she was anymore, and that she was having a real struggle with this man that she loved very much and would visit him a lot. Obviously, they had had a close relationship when she was younger, and it was just very painful for her. But she said, thank you so much for sharing those 
wrinkled wisdom images because now I have a deeper appreciation, a, a, an inkling of more understanding of even though my grandfather does not know who I am, he is still a beautiful, elegant, wise, majestic man, and he is still there in a way that is what's happening right now. And the images that you shared have helped me get a clear picture. Now I'm really looking forward to seeing him soon. And I just, you know, that's where I really started getting into into understanding about the relationship connection of that legacy, even though he's, you know, not there, he's there. And mm -hmm. I know, Laurie, you talked about that, you you know, a lot about that and, and been in some sessions that, that we've explored that. But, the, <clears throat> excuse me, but that image of the flowers and her story was just so moving to me is that it was it was worth all the time and effort that I put into to publishing uh, this work of art uh, with this book with my mother. Oh, beautiful! Very, it's it's just very very neat. Um, did your mom ever make any comments to you about how she felt about the process? Yeah, let me let me answer your. Uh, Let me answer your, your question about how it, it changed our relationship. Mm -hmm. um, because of our relationship, um, and I alluded to being the black sheep, uh, the family, and the family history uh, on her side of the family of considerable amount of d dysfunction, um, she really did not quite understand why I would be interested in doing something like this with her because it was so out of character of the kind of relationship that we had. I'm not saying that our 60 years was all on the dark side, on the dark mm -hmm. side, because there were really golden moments also. But because of that in and out kind of relationship that we had, uh, it took her a while to adjust to the idea that I would even want to consider spending my time with her in doing something on this level. Wow. But it was just, she was she would mention it, she wouldn't mention it to me, but she would mention it to other family with siblings or other friends of hers about, you know, what's, this is, this is out of the ordinary. This is out of the ordinary, and I thought it was too. Mm -hmm. The thing that happened as we as we kept sort of building our little project together, just just little doing little things together. What we began to realize is that if we were going to hold the integrity and tell the truth as artists, because that's one of the things that artists do, is that we're willing to to be vulnerable and to have the courage to stick ourselves out there into the world for everybody to judge. And if we were going to hold our authenticity as individuals, mother, father, and mother, son, man, woman, artist, et cetera, et cetera, is that we were going to have to do the same thing with each other. And I went, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is... <laughs> tricky because of the family secrets and so on and so forth, you know. 
in our relationship. But we we decided that we were going to open that door and step in it together. And I tell you, there were moments in there that I know that for me, I can't speak for her, but I know that for me I'm going, you got to be kidding me. There ain't no way. Okay? Um <laughs> This ain't going to happen. I'm not, I, I, not going to go there. I'm not going to talk about suicide and alcoholism and and mental illness and you know, etc. Oh, you got to be kidding me, please. Well, you know, there's a there was a, there's a point, at least for us, and that's where the celebratoriness of the relationship came in. That was the moment, the moment of truth. Um, or as a friend of mine would say, the old shit factor. Oh, oh, okay. That if we were going to say to people, how are you going to celebrate your life's journey with other people? You had to be willing to go into some doors and go, go through some of them, you know, that maybe were, you know, forbidden before. Okay. Yeah. And and so we we decided we started going down there. Now, it wasn't all peaches and cream and, you know, et cetera, but there were some conversations that we had with each other that were those moments of truth that just were like, this is this is really magical. This is, we are having some tough conversations, along with all the other good stuff, too. So it wasn't, that's the art. The art is that creative conflict, that tension that happens when you're creating art, whether you're a musician or poet or sculptor or photographer or whatever. There's always those moments of, oh, i got to go you know, work through this. And we figured that we were going to have to do, if we were going to really do this and create a work of art, which we did with this book, if we were going to create that, we were going to have to be willing to do that together. Mm-hmm. So what I found out was is that even though we had stuff, okay, we had issues, is that if you're willing to be there with each other and to support each other and to be empathetic at the same time, and that's that can be a real challenge. Because you all have, I have, you know, I got history, you know, um, and my mother was a very, you know, she was. Catholic, 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 and um, very cautious, and, you know, you didn't swear, and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Well, I did, and so you had to deal with all that kind of stuff. Um, But as we kept going through that, it enriched the, the whole conversation. It brought it to a different level of dignity and respect and understanding, even though we had issues of forgiveness, of understanding, of renewal, um, of just there was a there was a deeper respect um, and acceptance. That's the word I'm looking for. There was there was a deeper acceptance, um, and even though I knew that we all have stuff and blah 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 blah, to do this with the woman who gave me life was a different game. Um, you know, I could do it with my own children, with with Constance. I could do it with my brothers and sisters, but with your mama, you know, that was that was a bit of a stretch. But there was a point in there, in that process, particularly around the stories, 
because um, originally the, the, the little vignette stories that we put in the book were not there, and I was approaching publishers, and what began to happen was is that publishers loved the book, they loved the idea, but they weren't going to pick it up because they didn't know where to put it. Mm-hmm. Is it photography? Is it... Is it relationships? Is it inspirational? Is it poetry? And because they couldn't pigeonhole it. But one of the publishers gave us some feedback that was absolutely brilliant. He said, I love the photos. I love the poems. But what's missing for me is you're not making me cry. I want to cry about this relationship. Hmm. And I know. It was kind of like, okay, now. I could get Kleenex boxes and pass those, you know, that kind of thing. But he was saying something's missing, and he didn't he didn't know what was missing. So I, thinking about it and meditating about it and talking to some folks about it, said, let's, let's tell little stories, because I didn't want to tell the stories of, you know, Kay Saunders and the son Bernie Saunders, and Bernie was born on a cold January, you know, blah, 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 blah. How boring is that? Mm-hmm. So... We conceived an idea that we would we would negotiate certain events in our life together as a mother and son. She she wrote down certain events, and I wrote down certain events, and we negotiated those events of which ones we were going to write about. And so we did, and that was an interesting conversation because there was some on there on her list that I didn't think that she would ever ever ever. In a cold day in January, would ever consider, you know, wanting to disclose, to be vulnerable to the rest of the world, and um, and she did. She insisted, um, and I can read read that one too if 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 you want me to. So anyway, what we did then was we we picked these different um, events for the early years, middle years, and older years, and then she went off and wrote her recall of the event. And I went off and wrote my recall of the event. And then we got together and we shared what we individually had written. That had to be interesting. <laughs> and that, <laughs> interesting was mild. <laughs> That's a good, good way to, <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh, you got to be good. Anyway, we really got into the spirit of it and it really was fun. It really, after after the shock, the initial shock of, Oh, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me, okay? Is that? But it, what it did was, is that it added, um, it added that, that dimension of that was missing. It was, it was that human connection piece of sharing a little bit more of the privacy of these two people, the, the mother and son, about the, just to give a little bit of a flavor of what their relationship was like. So let me, can I read one? Yeah, please, please. I was going to ask you to. So, yeah, that'd be great. All right. right, So here's an example of what she wanted to do, and I went, okay, all right. So this is in the the early years, and this was during my, uh, well, it'll be obvious in the story. The title of it is called Waiting Up. Waiting up, part one. It's late, too late. Where is he? 
It was so much easier when I knew that he was tucked in upstairs, sleeping as soundly as the other four. Who was it that said we must give our children a warm nest and strong wings? Ah, the nest is the easy part, but boy, giving them wings? I know that he's begun drinking. I talked to him about it, but he can't hear me. What's the big deal, Mom? He asks, grinning. I know alcohol has the power to bring down even this strong-willed young man, but he doesn't know that yet. I've seen it happen with my dad, the denials, the escalating family arguments, the all-too-early death. I grieve every day for losing this dear man. Is this, too, the legacy that I'm passing on to my firstborn son? It's late, so late. Where is he? I join the course of supplicating mothers everywhere, sitting up late into the night with wordless prayers for their children. Okay. Wow. Waiting up part two. Well, you're waiting up for me as usual, Mom. I've been out on Sandpoint having a great time with my friends, enjoying the magical northern night sky, laughing long and loud and hard around a roaring fire. I feel the terrific buzz and warmth of booze. It's way past the time that I said that I would be home. Sitting in your favorite living room chair, wrapped in a bright red robe, it's obvious that you've been crying in the dark. We talk. Life love, my friends, fears, and hopes. It is our way of calming each each other down in some strange and meaningful way. As usual, you ask me not to drink anymore, or at least not as much, and to be more careful. I promise, but not really. Exhausted, we kiss and hug and say, I love you and go to bed reassured that everything is okay once again. Bernie. Wow. Talk about the the two different different viewpoints, and I I love the the vulnerability of this project that brings you closer by sharing sharing those moments. That's really powerful. Really powerful. Thank you. Thank you. That was one of the... That was one of the stories she insisted that we put in the book because that was my, you know, when I was in high school and and her father was an alcoholic and died an alcoholic and that was her fear and that was part of the family secret that was the big elephant in the in the living room and she just said, you know, I wanna I wanna do this and I said, okay, all right, here we go, hold on, buckle up, <laughs> okay, <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was. Um, it was very, very healing to be willing to to go and to celebrate in a way, even though there was pain embedded in the story and fear and et cetera, et cetera. It was it was about that moment of acknowledgement of forgiveness and reconstituting our relationship in a way that that had never been done before. And that's that's our message. You know, even though she's not here physically, it's still our message to anybody at any time, please 
find some way, whatever way it is, a recording, a video, a drawing, a music, a treasure, something, any, it doesn't matter what it is, something so that you can enrich and enhance that relationship with the person you deeply care about before it's too late. And, Laura, you and I know we've been doing this long enough. You know, we've heard enough of the, the painful stories that people uh, say to us, I wish I had. I, just, I didn't know how to do it. I feel so guilty that I didn't do something. And our, our hope uh, with this project and your work also, and so many fabulous people, is so that nobody has to ever say, I wish I had, I feel guilty because I didn't know how to do it or, you know, whatever, whatever it happened to be. So. <clears throat> yeah, Barry, it, it is important to, to share um, and to help the next guy um, through this process. I think it, it gives purpose to why we go through what we go through. You know, for me, it it. It's kind of that sanity and that check and balance that it's not all for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to be able to get a glimpse, you know, closer of your relationships at hand. And, and I say this all the time with my mom. You know, she's most people would look at her as a shell of, in the body or a shell of the body and someone who they couldn't interact with. And to this day, I still can honestly say I have my most intimate relationship with her because she has taught me to communicate on levels I didn't know existed. She's taught right. me to slow down and and really find the grace in the ordinary day. It doesn't have to be special. It just has to be shared between two people. It has to be yeah. recognized and appreciated. And um and I think that's, you know, what your what your book is really all about and and to go back and and um, look at a relationship that wasn't always that easy, and finding new ways to connect. I mean, what a gift! That I I can't imagine that every time you don't look at that book, that that's just a blessing to you. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. I just very. I just reinforce what you just said. I just think what you what you just said was very very elegant, and that is find something. You know, um, even though the mother-father doesn't recognize you and they're in those stages, you know, similar to what your mother is, my my hunch is is that there's some treasured moment that's to be celebrated even during those times. And my invitation to you is somehow to record that, to to create, you know, even though they're not being you know, I, I don't know what the phrase is, but maybe you can clarify this for me. Even though they're not being active, you know, and the exchange back and forth in a way that we would like, they're still engaging. Still, there's a, still a transaction that's happening in some way, shape, or form. And my invitation is to find find those treasures, those little little gems that come and and to record those in some way shape or form to log them or whatever whatever it may be so that you you have some some story it's all about the story and this is a story this book the grace ordinaries is a story of 60 years of a mother and son who just happened to be lucky 
to be at the right place at the right time with the right resources, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to do that. And, and that's my invitation to people is to find, find something because you will not lose. This will inspire, enrich, enhance, give you solitude, um, whatever, you know, for the rest of your life and not to miss that moment. That's my hope. That's that is that is great, great advice, Bernie. How do people get a hold of you um, if they're interested in having you come speak or buying some of your products? I mean, you have such uh, – Bernie has some really incredible, incredible tools for people to be able to use and um, to hear him speak. And the, the the place you come from is just so – authentic and centered and um, it it just really creates a a beautiful place for people to easily maneuver through their own minutiae that we all have and um, and, and find peace with it and so I I, I thank you so much for being with us today but how do people get a hold of you what would what would you like to share with them as far as information ways is to email me and that's really simple so it's bernie at berniesaunders.com so that's the that's the email the website is very simple too it's www.berniesaunders are we going to be able to stop saying www someday i think i think, I think, you know, I think we're getting there we got rid of the http no <laughs> <laughs> getting there. <laughs> there is progress. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's BernieSaunders.com, and on that website there is access to the book, other products and services that I have, a meditative DVD that people have, uh, other programs. Um, if if that's you know of, of interest. So there's a store, and then there's my photography website that's linked also on there. That's on that on that website. You can go take a look at my images, and those are available also for for purchases of a variety of different sizes and shapes and forms. Uh, for um, telephone number is seven six three four seven nine twelve twenty six. That's the office number, and I do staff development. Family talks, uh, keynotes, workshops from one hour to a day, uh, uh, book gatherings. People will ask me to come to your church or your club or your home or uh, facility uh, and uh, do a book reading. I just did one for the local Rotary Club uh, about relationships, which was really interesting because uh, these were the these were the guys, you know, uh, which was fascinating. And uh, and uh, senior living facilities will have me come and do something uh, for for their uh, for their groups. So a wide variety. And if you're curious about that. Um, and I have other programs for bridging the transition gap and helping adult children and their parents. So I have a program on that. So a variety of things. And if you're curious, give me a holler, send me an email, and we can have a chat and see if there's some opportunities. So. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all your time with us today. It's just such a pleasure to have you on with us. And, again, don't forget to uh, – Check Bernie out, and it's www.bernie, and that's B-E-R-N-I-E, and then Saunders is S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S.com, berniesaunders.com. Well, you have a blessed day, and I hope to catch up with you soon, Bernie. Hey, thank you very much for the invitation. Enjoy.
Okay, thank you. Bye now. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show today. And again, if you enjoyed the show, I would appreciate if you uh, like and tweet us and uh, email this episode to friends and share. I think there was lots of great information that was shared between Dr. Hightai and uh, Bernie Saunders today. I also want to invite you, if you're not doing anything a little later today, um, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central Time, and noon Pacific Time, we are going to have our Dementia Chats, which is a free webinar series. And um, that information you can find at uh, www.alzheimerspeaks.com. And we would love to have you join the conversation with that. Um, you can, again, talk with us through the, through the chat box on that. We're going to be talking about dementia-friendly businesses, communities, and individuals to uh, just understand what dementia is really like. Until the next time, again, focus on progress, not perfection. And when we're engaging with those with dementia, we need to just remember three simple things that our memory chip teaches us. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And you can get your free memory chip along with other tools at uh, our website, www.alzheimerspeaks.com. And if you've got uh, caring tools that you want to share with others, you can also input those into the resource directory there. Until next time, have a blessed day. Our next show is going to be on... November 1st, and Monica Helmtes is going to be with us with MindStart, and she's just full of great information, has wonderful tools to help people engage people at all stages of dementia. And then Dr. Gordon Atherley, um, who is the host of the Family Caregivers Unite program, will also be with us on the 1st. Talk soon. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, Jared Sebastian, host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.